Now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Greetings from the near frontier. Thank you so much for tuning in to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm your host, Cam Edwards. I hope that you are having a fantastic week. It's been busy on the farm, believe it or not. Uh, Last week, you know, we uh, talked about my daughter who had come into town for a visit. It was a good one. Uh, She is back at work now and uh, really proud of her, really glad that uh, I had a chance to see her. Uh, We've got uh, a crew's hard at work on the farm as well, uh, laying power lines underground. This is probably the biggest change, actually, as far as electricity goes to the farm since uh, it was electrified back in the, I'm guessing, late 1930s, uh, early 1940s. The uh, power company asked us a couple months ago if we were interested in having the uh, lines run underground. Apparently, they've got some projects, some tax credits. I don't know what the deal is, but uh, uh, I said, yes, I would like to do that, and hopefully we will uh, not lose power nearly as much as we have over the uh, past couple of winters, especially. I don't I don't mind. I mean, it's never fun to lose power, but you know, if you lose power in a, uh, a summer thunderstorm, it's a you know sunny afternoon, you get the power back in a couple hours, that's one thing. When it's uh, eight inches of snow and the power goes out and it's three, four days before you get it back, and it's really, really cold in the house. Uh, Yeah, that's another thing entirely. So hoping to avoid a repeat of uh, what we have seen over the past couple of winters. Um, Actually, last winter, you know, too, we also had a pipe burst for the first time uh, in our house, and we realized that the uh, person who had built a uh, a bathroom off of the uh, master bedroom had not really thought about things like, you know, insulation for the pipes underneath and uh yeah bad things happened uh last the last winter storm when it got so bitterly cold this past winter the uh, pipes burst underneath our bathroom and it was a mess and uh so we we knew that before winter came and winter is coming uh we knew that before winter came we wanted to make sure that we had fixed that so we did uh, this week, thanks to the uh, help of a, a good guy who helped build our studio down here, uh, uh, Jimmy McDilda, uh, and his guys came out, and uh, we now have insulation under the bathroom. We have a uh, access panel where before we had cinder blocks placed up against the, the open hole underneath our uh, bathroom. So uh, I'm hopeful that we have uh, prepared ourselves uh, we have winterized the uh, farm a little bit, even though it's only August. I'm starting to feel it's, this is weird to feel ha- ahead of the game. So I know that something uh, is probably going to come up between now and the first frost. But uh, right now, I do actually feel a little ahead of the game uh, when it comes to prepping the, uh, the the house for winter. I think I also mentioned last week too. We had a a, a leak in our kitchen ceiling, which was uh, troubling to say the least. Uh, As it turns out, I was thinking that it was the flashing. Because of how our house has been built over the years, the uh, first two rooms of the house were built around 1775 to 1780, somewhere around then. Uh, Then there there were two more rooms put, just built right up on top uh, of the uh, original two-room log cabin. That was probably in the 1850s. Uh, then there were a, a couple more rooms added in the 1880s. I don't think the kitchen got there until the uh, early 1900s. And um, the roof over all of the different parts of the house are, are, is different. We have a slate roof, we have a tin roof, and we have 
the normal roof shingles over different parts of the house, which is kind of a pain. Uh, anyway, where the uh, kitchen uh, was built on to the original part of the house, I figured that the uh, the flashing had come up, and that's where we were getting a leak. Uh, uh, thankfully, that was not the case. Uh, it was just a, a leaky window, and uh, we fixed that with some caulk, so I think that we're good to go as far as uh, leaky houses go. There's always something, though. You know, with an old house, there is always something, and there's usually two or three things. This was, this has been a, a, a I want to say a bone of contention with uh, Miss E and I over the course of our marriage, but when we first, when we bought our first house, uh, we had been married a few years, and we had been uh, renting, and we actually found a house uh, for sale. Uh, Miss E told me about it when she came home one afternoon and said, there's a, there's a house like three blocks from here that's for sale. Let's go take a look at it. Oh, okay. Uh, so we went and we looked at it, and it was a cute little you know starter house, three-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath. A uh, nice big lot. It was an old home. That's the thing. It was built in 1912, which in Oklahoma City is a pretty old home. And that concerned me a great deal uh, at the time because I, I I just had these fears that we would buy a house that we could afford. And because it was so old, we would then have uh, repairs that we would be forced to make that we could not afford. And um, it never got to that point, but there were things that we could not afford to fix. They they weren't going to make the house fall down around us. Although I actually, I did worry about that because part of the, one of the problems was the foundation of the house. Uh, it was built up on a, a crawl space. So you had these pillars and ordinarily, you know, the pillars would be fairly stable. These pillars were not stable at all. They were made of old bricks and old cinder blocks, bits of wood that had been jammed together. That's what was holding our house up. And it would have been a major project to uh, to, to fix that, to jack up our house, to actually install the uh, real pillars. We didn't have the money to do it. So every night before I went to bed, part of my prayers were, please don't let the house fall down. Uh, so I, I, I worry about old homes. Of course, when we lived in a house that had been built in the uh, 1970s, we had some issues there, too. And I ended up worrying about the repairs in that home. Actually, I didn't because we rented. So I, I was uh, vaguely concerned but the, uh, the landlord could take care of it. That's the difference. It's not even the age of the home. It's the ownership of the home. When it's your responsibility as opposed to your landlord's responsibility, oh, man, the things that you end up worrying about, they, just, uh, they, they grow by leaps and bounds. But anyway, hopefully we have uh, started to make our house ready for winter. I'm, I'm not ready for summer to be over yet, but uh, I am ready to face the cold Virginia winds. Now, in addition to the work being done around the house, my friend Katie Pavlich actually stopped by this past weekend as well. I got a, uh, a text from her on Saturday saying, hey, listen, I'm in the area. You want to go have breakfast? I said, sure, that'd be fantastic. So found a uh, pet-friendly place. If you're ever headed to Farmville, you want to eat and you have your pet with you, uh, Walker's Diner, right there on Main Street, recently featured on American Diner Revival on the Food Network, I might add. Uh, Arlene has some tables set up outside, and uh, it is very dog-friendly. So uh, Katie and I met for breakfast on Sunday morning, then uh, showed Katie around the farm, and I uh, showed her puppy around the farm as well. Uh, Katie, I think, left thinking, boy, it would be really cool to to have a farm. And when Katie left, I was thinking, man, I want another puppy. I really want another puppy. I, I, so we've been talking 
Katie, you've inspired us. Um, we're talking about getting a third dog, which is we've had three. Actually, when we uh, not long after we moved to the farm, we uh, about a year, I suppose, because we moved uh, right there in the dead of winter. And then uh, about a year later for uh, for Christmas, we ended up getting our uh, our dog Bullet, the uh, the cutest dog in the world, who is a great Bernese, which is one of those uh, made up breeds of dogs. He's uh, half Bernese mountain dog, half great Pyrenees. And he is uh, all uh, lovable and adorable. He's just a great big fluff ball. He does have a good bark on him, uh, and he's not afraid to uh, challenge strangers. But he's a, uh, he's a, he's a good boy. Uh, so he was our third dog. And then um, when Bullet was still a puppy, we lost our, uh, our oldest dog, uh, who had been with us for seven or eight years. And so we've, we've had two uh, since then. But, you know, there's been a, a period of time when we had three dogs. Here's the thing. I'm not I, – I really like the idea of a uh, of a puppy. I do. And I am a dog person. Nothing against cat people, but I am a dog person. It was, as much as I would like to have a puppy, as much as I would uh, – to, to, to just, you know, have all of the puppy activities. And I saw Charles Cook got a puppy not long ago, and I've been watching his Instagram feed with his puppy. And I it, – it, yes, I want another puppy. But having two dogs – uh, in a house is is one thing. Having three dogs, all of a sudden, it's it's a pack now, right? When there are three, um, and a, having a pack of dogs in your house because we don't want another little tiny dog. Not the bullet is a little tiny dog, but we have a little tiny dog, and then we have the behemoth that is bullet. Uh, so we're looking at golden retriever. Uh, maybe a lab, something that's not a small dog. I mean, not huge, not a mastiff or anything like that, but a decent, good-sized dog. I, I, I honestly just don't know if I'm ready for another dog in the house. It was, it was, you know, when I was thinking about it, and Katie was there, and the puppy was so cute, and he was running around, and he would just, just tear down the uh, hill towards the creek, and then it'd stop and it'd turn around and it'd look at you like, "Wow, this is awesome," and then it just keep going. I, that was great. That was fantastic. But see, I also noticed that that was outside. I figured out, aha, you know, all those fun little moments there with that puppy. Yep. They were all outside of the house. So I was on board for a while. Now I'm uh, much more on the fence about whether or not we uh, will be adding to the menagerie. Uh, well, now here's the thing. And I know I'm going to get some uh, emails and some questions about this. What about an outside dog? Right. Listen, I've got no problems with uh, having an outside dog. As a matter of fact, Bullet was supposed to be an outside dog, but uh, Bullet is not an outside dog. Part of the problem is we don't really have the fencing uh, to make sure that the uh, outside dog would be secured, right? I, I want—I don't want my dog to be free-range because if my dog is free-range, then my dog is likely to get hit by a car, uh, could get attacked by coyotes, uh, we've got bear running around every now and then uh, in the area, so uh, that's always a possibility as well. But and when we first moved to the area, actually, one of our neighbors, uh, when we were talking, and she was, uh, she had met the dogs, our dogs at the time, and, and she basically told us, like, keep them on a leash or don't get too attached uh, because bad things can happen to your pets out here on a fairly regular basis. And 
So I, I, I worry um, about having an outside dog and the best way to have an outside dog. Like we have a small pen. I don't, I don't even say it's small pen. It's a pretty good sized pen. Um, but that's, I don't want to keep my dog there. So the dogs in our lives have usually been inside dogs. So I don't know. I'm torn. Maybe I'll just get an alpaca. Maybe it's just time for the guard alpaca. But I still worry about the fencing with that, too. Maybe it's time to just start saving up for some uh, better fencing. I think that that seems to be perhaps a, uh, a solution here. All right, listen, we got to take a uh, quick time out on 40 Acres and a Fool. When we come back, we'll talk about farm bubbles, chicken tunnels, and so much more. Stick around. There is more 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network coming up right after this. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. The Jeff Fisher Show. Now, the University of Missouri broke down the types of drunks into four distinct categories. Uh, and this, of course, was published in the Addiction Research and Theory. And, pff, I mean, who doesn't go over that? Scientists surveyed 187 pairs of undergraduate drinking buddies. Now, the findings, you were either a Hemingway, Mary Poppins, Nutty Professor, or Mr. Hyde Drunk. The Jeff Fisher Show. Saturday morning, 6 to 8 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm Cam Edwards. Uh, So we have not lost any chickens lately to fox or coyote. Uh, And I think this is due to the new, well, a couple of things. Uh, The the fence that we have actually put up around the, uh, the chicken coop. Uh, that's kept them out, and it, it was a trial and error thing. We uh, re- we realized pretty early on uh, we had to cover up the top of the uh, the the chicken wire fence, even though it was you know six feet tall. The chickens were getting up and over. We uh, we fooled them for a little bit by just running string along the top, and then they figured out, <laughs> nah, it's just string. Chickens are not actually as stupid as as you might think. Uh, anyway, they uh, so we eventually covered up the top of the uh, the the pin for them. Uh, so the hawks can't get in, the fox can't get in, the coyotes can't get in, they can't get out, they have a, a, a good amount of space, but we wanted them to have more space. Uh, and rather than try to cover up the entirety of our backyard with uh, and make it one big chicken coop, we instead uh, constructed a chicken tunnel, which has worked out amazing. Uh, the uh, the chicken tunnel uh, you can find a lot of different designs online and uh, a lot of different uh, uh, different ways of building whether it's you know the heavy gauge wire or chicken wire um, so figure out what would work best for you but uh, the basic uh, concept is that you have a a, a tunnel which is uh, you know up to humans let's say knee high uh, that the that is built out of this wire it, it, and you can run it along the uh, edge of your garden. You can run it along your fence line. You can run it anywhere you want. Uh, and the chickens then have a a, a place for them uh, to run around and to uh, uh, safely uh, peck at the grass and, you know, have their own safe space. And it's uh, it, it doesn't require a lot of height. Uh, instead, you can build out. You can have your sort of chicken habit trail uh, all over the garden, which is kind of what we want to do. So we have the first 44 feet uh, constructed 
And it took the chickens a few days to realize that they could, A, get into the chicken tunnel, and, and B, that they wanted to get into the chicken tunnel. We uh, we enticed them with some uh, cucumbers from the garden and some uh, uh, fresh tomatoes down there, and eventually they figured it out. So now they will hang out in the tunnel uh, as well as in the chicken yard. And uh, one of our weekend plans for this upcoming weekend is to build another section of chicken tunnel uh, so that the chickens have even more space to run around. And we can then start to build our, our flock back up a little bit because it was decimated uh, by the coyotes and the fox. I've, I've seen the fox around a couple of times over the past uh, a couple of weeks, never in a position where I could uh, actually get a shot at it, uh, unfortunately. But uh, it has not been able to get in to the uh, chickens. It has not uh, tried to go after the uh, the younger goats or uh, it, it would not be stupid enough to go after our hogs. Um, and I actually haven't seen any coyote in probably a month or so. Did see, uh, starting to see some white-tailed deer pop up in the pasture uh, in front of the house. And actually the other night, uh, right around sunset, there was a, uh, a doe that was just across our, our gravel driveway from the house. So it wasn't that far from the house over by the uh, the water pump that we uh, had installed recently. And uh, it, it was looking at me, and I was looking at it. And it was a really good-sized doe. Uh, and then it, uh, after five minutes or so, decided I wasn't going to do anything to it. And it uh, uh, lazily or nonchalantly, uh, I think it might have been a pose, but nonchalantly uh, strolled off towards the wood line and uh, disappeared. So uh, we're starting to see some deer, but uh, thankfully have not seen the return of the coyotes. So now we have chickens uh, happily roaming around the uh, the garden in their, in their chicken tunnel. Uh, the uh, pigs, and uh, I, I call them pigs. They're not pigs. They're hogs. But uh, the hogs are doing fantastic. Um, they're really loving the summer with the uh, – we, we go out there multiple times a day and uh, – turn on the hose, make sure that the water gets cold first, and then we'll spray them down, and they'll come running over, and they'll eat at the water, and we uh, have a good time, make sure that they've got their, their wallows all filled up. So the uh, the hogs are doing well. The goats are doing well. The garden is, I mean, the tomatoes still have tomato blight, uh, and they are still slowly dying, but uh, they are raging. In the, in the words of Dylan Thomas, they are raging against the dying of the light, and they are producing uh, even while the tomato blight is slowly consuming them. So we've been canning tomatoes. We have been pickling tomatoes. Yes, you can actually pickle tomatoes. And yes, they're really pretty good, believe it or not. Uh, making pickles. Uh, uh, starting to ferment hot peppers. So the hot pepper sauce that uh, the house has become known for over the uh, past year or so, thanks to the uh, incredible expertise of Miss E., uh, I think we are going to have enough hot peppers for uh, hot sauce for Christmas presents. I'm happy about that. In the garden, it, uh, it it's producing. It continues to produce, so I'm happy with that. We actually have a uh, table full of tomatoes right now. So the offer still stands. Anybody wants to uh, drive down to Farmville, pick up uh, a pint or two of tomatoes, uh, you just let me know because we'll have some for you for the next couple of weeks or so. All right, we're going to take a, another time out here on 40 Acres and a Fool. When we come back, uh, I mentioned the farm bubble and chicken tunnel. Well, we talked about the chicken tunnel, so I guess we should talk about the the farm bubble. Uh, and not necessarily in terms of the uh, prices for uh, farms around the country. 
a government program that was created about 100 years ago, uh, you will be shocked to learn, has now grown and become bloated and has expanded far beyond its original purpose. Uh, and that's the bubble that we're talking about. A, a, a program that was designed to help small farmers, which is now uh, helping, among others, uh, huge telecom companies. Uh, and the bills may be coming due here, and the people who may be hurt the worst, yep, the folks who uh, this program was originally supposed to help, these small farmers. Stick around. We'll be back with more 40 Acres and a Fool coming up right after this. This is 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. Those, those sound pretty good, right? Those must be pretty swell. And Tom Cotton said... Tell us what they are. And the White House said, no such deals. Kerry said, no such deals. You're lying. This morning, Kerry said, oh, oh, I guess there are. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks so much for being a part of this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool, the 25th episode of 40 Acres and a Fool. Can you believe it? We uh, Again, we started out in the depths of winter, and here we are in the dog days of summer, heading towards the uh, changing of the leaves in the fall, and soon it'll be winter again. Um, now, I mentioned before the break that uh, we were talking about farm bubbles. The Washington Examiner had a piece uh, not long ago, Emily Paget, America's next big bailout, she wonders. Uh, she calls it a government-backed organization founded a century ago to provide loans to farmers that has recently exploded in size, branching out into massive transactions that go far beyond its original purpose, potentially putting taxpayers on the hook for a major bailout. It's the farm credit system, which is actually uh, predates the New Deal by 20 years or so uh, the farm credit system created in 1916 as a tax exempt and taxpayer backed organization to provide loans to farmers in rural communities, Emily writes, but it has since deviated. She says from this narrow purpose and assets have burgeoned to $283 billion, making it equal in size to the nation's ninth largest bank. This comes after 10 years of doubling assets for the farm credit system. Uh, she uh, quotes Congressman Marlon Stutzman of Indiana, who in uh, May wrote a letter to the Comptroller General at the Government Accountability Office. Uh, He says, unfortunately, a too-big-to-fail approach has allowed this government-sponsored enterprise to overstep its purpose and crowd out private lenders. Unless we return the farm credit system to its original mission, taxpayers could be on the hook for a bailout in the near future, and farmers' access to credit could be reduced. In other words, the very reason why the farm credit system was created, uh, we would not be allowed to serve that purpose because... Uh, it has expanded far beyond that purpose. Uh, Emily Paget writes, while the FCS began as a way to help uh, hard up rural areas, uh, it has uh, since expanded uh, the mission beyond that original uh, goal. Uh, in 2013, she writes, Colorado CoBank, branch of the farm credit system, issued a $725 million loan to Verizon Wireless and their Vodafone owner in London, 
claiming that it could legally make the loan because Verizon was a similar entity to a rural telephone company and was supplying some infrastructure to rural telecommunications. So, ta-da! The farm credit system also entered, she says, into a $350 million credit agreement with Frontier Communications Corporations to help finance a $2 billion acquisition from AT&T. The uh, system also part of a $750 million loan to restaurant chain Cracker Barrel in 2001. Now, look, we all like Cracker Barrel, but but Cracker Barrel getting loans from the farm credit system? Cracker Barrel is not a farmer. Uh, Representative Mick Mulvaney, Republican from South Carolina, talked to the uh, CEO of the uh, Farm Credit Administration, which is the regulator of the farm credit system. Uh, and he said... Certain FCS lending institutions have utilized lending authority outside of their mission and intended purpose, put taxpayers at risk, competed with private sector financial institutions in areas outside of agriculture and farm-related businesses, and distorted the market. And he said, I now question whether these loans exceed the authority granted under the Farm Credit Act. The uh, CEO of the Farm Credit System, Kenneth Auer, Uh, told the uh, Washington Examiner, we do have the authority and the responsibility to make rural infrastructure loans, including electric and broadband systems. There are a lot of other things that we finance other than farmers. Well, that seems to be, uh, I guess, the the, the question there as to whether or not that is good or not. Uh, Emily Paget writes, in addition to the large untoward loans, the FCS shares another startling resemblance to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The country's taxpayers would be liable for any farm credit system economic trouble. This comes after the system opened a $10 billion line of credit with the Federal Financing Bank, a branch of the U.S. Treasury, in 2013. It's funded by taxpayer dollars. The uh, FCS is backed by the government, Emily Paget writes, and is tax-exempt, paying only 4.5% in taxes. They can set loan rates at a half to a whole percentage point below the rates offered by its private competitors, Despite the fact that the 1986 Farm Credit Act Amendment states that in no case is any borrower to be charged a rate of interest that is below competitive market rates for similar loans made by private lenders. So they're squeezing out uh, private banks uh, as well here. Um, Ed Elfman is the vice president of Congressional Relations for the American Bankers Association. He talked to the Washington Examiner. He said, we openly accept any fair competition. Our banks are competing with each other every day. We'll compete with everybody if it's a level playing field. He said, uh, small rural banks are doing a great job of partnering with the USDA and Farmer Mac. The agricultural economy is good and bankers are getting creative. They really want those loans. Uh, The ABA, Emily Paget writes, uh, added that while it does believe the system has a place in agriculture, the government behemoth's recent actions indicate that the time is ripe for more farm credit system oversight. Elfman said, uh, the regulator, the Farm Credit Administration, lets them do anything they want to do. If the banking industry, he said, had a bank that grew $100 billion in 10 years, would have a hearing on that. But instead, the farm credit system has gone unchecked for about 15 years now. He says every single year, all of the banking regulators come before Congress. He said the FCS hasn't had one of those hearings in quite a while. We believe that they are due for one. Uh, Frank Keating, the uh, former governor of Oklahoma, and the uh, CEO of the American Bankers Association also talked with the Washington Examiner about this. 
And he says the uh, farm credit system maybe needs to be paying more in taxes. Uh, there are also suggestions that maybe private banks can pay less in taxes here. He said the looming bankruptcy of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, $18 trillion national debt. He said everybody's just on this wonderful spending spree. To have a business enterprise pay no income tax is unsustainable. Well, Emily Padgett says that despite the calls for oversight, um, so far, no congressional progress has been made to stop the farm credit system's rapid growth and ensure that the system does not become the country's next Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And by the way, we still have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and we also have uh, the beginnings of a, a new housing bubble. I was uh, listening to uh, NPR as I was uh, scanning my Sirius XM satellite radio the other day, and I caught a story about uh, a Franny, Fannie and Freddie and how it was fantastic that uh, the government still owns Fannie and Freddie because, uh, you know, they're, they're paying the government uh, billions of dollars here and all of these loans that, that, that you know, the government wouldn't get uh, if it did not have ownership of, of Fannie and Freddie. So, of course, it's a great thing that uh, uh, the government still owns uh, Fannie and Freddie and not necessarily, you know, again, you could um, you could still get those revenues from uh, private lenders here. Right. And there is, um, I think, a, a, a big concern about uh, a new housing bubble popping up. I saw a story about this earlier this week, I think, from the blog Instapundent, uh, Glenn Reynolds, uh, linking to a story about the uh, high cost of housing in places like uh, San Francisco, where I think it's, uh, what, $2,800 right now? I mean, you have people renting tents uh, in Silicon Valley for what uh, you could rent a, a house for, let's say, in uh, Oklahoma City. Uh, the housing bubble is, I don't think, uh, happening everywhere. But there are certainly those markets, uh, you know, in northern Virginia, I think we are seeing uh, the return of the housing bubble uh, in the uh, D.C. suburbs where uh, I used to live. And the home prices continue to go up. Now, what's happening at the same time that the housing prices are continuing to go up, uh, wages are not necessarily uh, following suit. And the quality of life in these communities is going down as well. When I moved to Northern Virginia, for instance, uh, to 2004, uh, Fairfax County Public Schools had a reputation as being one of the best school districts in the nation. People wanted to send their kids to, to Fairfax County. People would move when they had kids. They would move from wherever they were to Fairfax County to send their kids to Fairfax County schools. Ten years later, and the Washington Post is reporting on a $100 million shortfall in the Fairfax County Schools budget. And they don't know what to do about it. Uh, a, a task force that was put together made recommendations to uh, kill all high school sports. Football, basketball, softball, wrestling, all of them. Lacrosse, which is huge in uh, Northern Virginia. Get rid of them all. Get rid of all extracurricular activities at uh, all Fairfax County high schools. Uh, cut way into art and way into band. These are not uh, – and part of this is that they have to make a $49 million uh, uh, payment to the uh, pension 
plans. They're also talking about expanding class sizes. Um, and, you know, the if the education system becomes uh, not the shining jewel that it once was, right, and now it's, all of a sudden it's got a little tarnish on it, folks may want to leave uh, Fairfax County. They may say, all right, you know, it's going to be worth it to, to drive even an hour more uh, to work every day. We're going to move to Loudoun County, one one county further out west, or we're going to try to move to uh, Prince William County, uh, one county to the south. We're going to try to uh, maybe even move out even further uh, beyond the exurbs. But uh, they won't necessarily be able to sell their house because the, uh, the the softening of the market and the overpriced nature of the housing there, uh, Fairfax County may become a less desirable place to move to in the next five years or so, uh, if they, especially if they can't get their uh, fiscal house in order. And it should be noted, by the way, a, a spokesperson, I think, for the school board, uh, said, look, there's no chance that we're going to kill off all of the uh, high school athletic programs. There's no chance that we're getting rid of art and band. Uh, that's just that's just not going to happen. And, you know, look, I, I have no doubt they will do everything that they can to save uh, all of those programs, to save the, the quality of life programs. But the fact remains that uh, they're in a $100 million hole that they have to get out of. And the uh, pension obligations are only going to grow larger by the year. So the problem is not going to get better anytime soon. Um, With, again, that decline in school districts, I think you're going to see some people, those who can uh, try to afford to leave, um, make that switch or at least attempt to make that switch. And uh, that may reveal a bubble in the uh, northern Virginia suburbs. And, again, that's the northern Virginia bubble, I think, that is lurking. There are uh, a lot of problems, again, in uh, cities – around the country. So we may not be looking just at uh, the farm credit system bubble. We may be looking at another housing bubble here before long as well. Real estate in the country is still pretty cheap. <clears throat> All right, we got to take a, a time out here on 40 Acres and a Fool. Stick around. We'll be back with much more from the Blaze Radio Network coming up right after this. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. If on the one hand, he's going to build a moat on the border, fill it with alligators, and then on the other side, if you make it past the alligators, then we're going to hit you with an even more dangerous animal, and that's a rhinoceros. If you somehow make it past the rhinoceros, then the United States Marine Corps is there, and they're going to shoot you with guns as you run across. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool. Cam Edwards, your host. Uh, So this is the segment where we uh, normally take an email or two from you. The email address, uh, as always, is 40acrefool at gmail.com. That's 40acrefool at gmail.com. Don't forget to uh, tune in each and every weekday, live, 2 p.m. Eastern, on NRA for NRA News Cam and Company, the latest 
Second Amendment news and information each and every weekday. You can also find us at midnight Eastern, 9 Pacific, on Sirius XM Patriot 125, uh, on demand from iHeartRadio and on the NRA app. And uh, you can also find us on iTunes as well, so you can download the uh, show and listen at your leisure. I heard from Arturo uh, once again in the emails with an update on the uh, tomato situation. He said, uh, tomatoes have been one of the most challenging things to grow in our garden as well this year. We're only into our second attempt in season of trying to grow tomatoes. He says the cherry tomatoes did okay last year, but the globes suffered from a lot of blossom end rot. Yield wasn't all that great either. This year, he says, we planted new, for us, globe and paste varieties only. Still getting some blossom end rot, he says. I'm guessing we don't have the watering schedule dialed in. Uh, They're watered by hand, and we haven't been consistent you might, uh, Arturo, I don't know. now, And I'll be honest with you. Um, this is a suggestion. It's been suggested to me. Supposedly it works. It hasn't always worked for me. But uh, eggshells, if you put uh, some crushed eggshells uh, in as you're planting the tomatoes uh, at the beginning of the year, supposedly that helps prevent blossom end rot. Now, it, uh, I, I will say, again, we have still had blossom end rot on some of our plants each and every year that we've planted, uh, and we have done this each and every year. So clearly it's not 100% effective, but uh, but that might help you out as well. Um, you know, good good luck with the uh, the globe and the paste varieties. We've actually had uh, pretty good luck with the, the paste uh, tomatoes, the uh, bloody butchers that, uh, that, that uh, started coming in early in the year. Uh, we were able to put a lot of those back, some uh, Amish paste. Uh, tomatoes. Uh, we were able to uh, get a jar, a quarter or two of those uh, put away. Um, like I said, we really go with the cherry variety just because they tend not to be eaten by the rabbits the way the uh, the larger varieties are. Um, so we have a ton right now of cherry tomatoes. And the uh, the yield, as far as yield goes, you know, one of the varieties that we have had the best luck with over the past two or three years, I'm going to give you a couple of varieties, Arturo. The first one is uh, Sun Gold tomatoes. Really, really small, uh, smaller than a cherry. They uh, they turn bright orange, and they are very sweet. The, uh, the they're not tart at all. They you know a, a, a tomato is a fruit. Uh, and a sun gold tomato actually tastes a lot like a fruit. It tastes almost like a berry. Uh, and we have had tremendous success with the sun golds. We grew them for the first time last year. They are uh, uh, producing quite well this year. And uh, and again, they're just they're really yummy in salads. They're uh, they're they're just good as a snack on their own. Um, the other variety that we've also had a lot of luck with are the Hartman's Yellow Gooseberry Tomatoes. Those are a little bit bigger. Those are actually, I think, a uh, a cherry or a salad-sized tomato. Uh, they are, by the nature of their name, you might have guessed, they are yellow. They are bright yellow. Um, and they are they're hardy. Uh, these plants, Arturo, are incredibly hardy. We have a volunteer growing in our garden um, a, a tomato plant that uh, just started growing on its own. And we let those go uh, each and every year because they're just, you know, I mean, why not, right? They're going to grow tomatoes at some point. Might as well see what kind they are. Uh, this was a Hartman's Yellow Gooseberry variety. We didn't even plant any Hartman's Yellow Gooseberries this year. This plant, just growing up on its own, 
uh, is actually one of our most prolific plants this year in terms of uh, producing fruit. And they're, again, they're, they're nice and juicy. Uh, they're not going to be good for canning or anything like that, but they are, and they're, they're a little small for like a sandwich slicer. Uh, but they're really good in salads. They're really good just on their own. Now, if you're looking for a good slicer, and it sounds like maybe you've got some with the uh, the globe and paste varieties, we have had um, more success than we have ever had with any uh, big, juicy beefsteaky kind of tomato. With the uh, the Amish Gold slicers is what they're called, and they're uh, I'd say you know we're getting a lot of seven eight ounce again bright yellow bright orange uh, uh tomatoes and they're meaty they just sprinkle a little bit of salt on them slap them between two pieces of white bread little bit of mayonnaise on one of the pieces of bread can't ask for a better lunch when it's like 95 degrees outside so there are a couple of varieties for you uh, to try out next year arturo this is you know this, this is fun gardening is yes it's work it's weeding and it's never ending weeding and it's watering but it's also experimenting, right? It's it's getting to uh, explore new things. Like last year, uh, we grew something called a jelly melon kiwano. <laughs> Why? Because it looked really interesting. Uh, we had never had a jelly melon kiwano before, and it, it was described as um, having like the consistency of Jello, tasted uh, like a cross between a banana and a lime. So we're like, well, that sounds kind of interesting. Let, let's grow it. And uh, and we did. And uh, we won't grow it again. I mean, it was tasted kind of like a cross between a banana and a lime uh, in a jello shot format. So it was uh, it was interesting. But it was an experiment, right? We were just experimenting with uh, with different types of foods and what we wanted to grow and what we wanted to eat. We're, uh, we're, we're experimenting right now with Brussels sprouts. I've never grown Brussels sprouts before. I know I like to eat them. Uh, that was a fairly recent discovery. But, uh, you know, as long as you're trying out uh, new varieties and, uh, and and new foods, I think it's uh, I think it's one of the things that makes the weeding worthwhile. Right. When you get to to uh, uh, eat the fruits of your experimentation. So good luck with your Arturo. Um, again, the email address is 40 acre fool four zero acre fool at gmail.com. I do hope that I will hear from you before long. Would love to hear how things are going in your garden. Uh, speaking of volunteers in the garden over by the pigs, we, uh, where the, where the pigs are now and where the pigs were last fall, uh, before we moved them, we have some random tomato plants growing. Uh, I've, I think three different varieties that I've found so far. Another Hartman's Yellow Gooseberry, because those things are, uh, again, they're hearty. Uh, also, uh, we uh, have a, a Juliet, a little red uh, a Juliet growing, and then a, uh, I think a Gropoli, which is a, a smaller grape-sized tomato. We also have pumpkins uh, growing now in the uh, area where the hogs used to be, volunteer pumpkins. I've, I've seen at least two now on the vine I am sure that there are more buried in the uh, tall grass. So it looks like even though we didn't plant any pumpkins this year, we will still have pumpkins for uh, for Halloween. So that's pretty cool, too. Yeah, I just realized uh, we need to start wrapping things up here. But we haven't even talked about books this week. That's that's usually a, a portion of the show as well, right? Uh, and I, I, I actually did something I rarely do. I took a break from reading history books for a while. I'm back at it, I, I should mention as well. But uh, I read... A couple of fantastic thrillers 
over the last few weeks. I, you know, we had Brad uh, Thor uh, in studio on uh, NRA News Cam and Company not long ago. Uh, his new book, Code of Conduct, is out, and I got to tell you, this is I, I, when I get sucked into a book, I can't stop reading it. I, I, I really can't. I'll stay up. I think I mentioned this until two, three o'clock in the morning. So, Code of Conduct was one of those books where I had to read it in one sitting. Uh, thankfully, I, I actually had some time to sit and, and read it, but it's and it's a fast-paced thriller, and I'm a quick reader, but uh, I could not put this book down. I mean, it has such a a fast-paced plot, and it is such a compelling story. Uh, you're wondering, you know, come on, it's not, it's not really the, – the good guy always saves the day. I mean, come on, this isn't going to really – the stakes are so high. I mean, they're global in nature. Uh, and Brad Thor just paints this incredible tapestry uh, and weaves this very uh, compelling story uh, over the course of, you know, a, a couple of months and multiple continents. And uh, it's great. So uh, pick up Code of Conduct. If you haven't read it, you're still in the mood for some uh, summer reading. Code of Conduct by Brad Thor is incredible. Uh, along those same lines, there's also a, a new book out now called The Ghost Fleet that uh, came out this summer. It's sort of a future war uh, scenario and uh, takes place in the uh, let's say 15 to 20 years from now, it's, um, uh, I don't want to give the, the plot away any more than I want to give the plot away of uh, code of conduct, but, uh, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, a Tom Clancy, red storm rising, like that type of, of, of sweeping panoramic view of a, a future conflict, uh, August Cole and PW singer, who are a couple of analysts, uh, ended up writing this novel and there are some times where the the analytical side comes through uh, more than the uh, the plot or the character development, things of that nature. But it's really interesting to uh, to, to look at how uh, these guys, and I would throw Brad Thor in there as well. How Brad Thor, guys like August Cole, P.W. Singer, um, you know, they're using their imagination to to paint a, a picture of a very dangerous world, and it is a potential world that could exist. That's the thing. It's a potential world that could exist. None of this is uh, in the realm of 100 uh, percent fantasy, right? What Brad Thor writes about the uh, the threats uh, that the uh, the nation faces in code of conduct and the world faces in code of conduct, uh, the threats that the nation faces in Ghost Fleet are things that could happen. The uh, the technology that is wielded against the United States and against individuals. Uh, is technology that that uh, may very well uh, already exist, or the research is uh, taking place to to actually uh, bring these things to uh, to fruition. So they're kind of scary, but uh, again, both uh, a very very good thrillers. Uh, Brad Thor's Code of Conduct and uh, August Cole and P.W. Singer's Ghost Fleet. Be sure to uh, check those out again if you need some summer reading. I'll have more uh, history recommendations for you on the next edition of 40 Acres in a Fool. Plus, we'll uh, have an update on the bacon that is currently curing in my refrigerator right now. Uh, More news on the chicken tunnels, and who knows what we'll dig up on the uh, 40 Acres. Have yourself a fantastic week until we talk again. Be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot, and we'll see you here soon on another edition of 40 Acres in a Fool. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.